must be kidding me. Who could have imagined and whose crazy idea was it to call this program Faith Is and to then talk about absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? To actually say that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I mean, whose crazy idea was it? You went through a hurricane and you're talking about faith? I mean, really, did you not have enough faith to pray so that the hurricane wouldn't hit? Whose crazy idea is this? Well, that crazy idea came from me, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where, yes, we talk about faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And yes, we did have a hurricane, and yes, it came right over my house. I got to find out what it was like to be in the eye of a hurricane. Never thought I would get to experience that. Uh, never really sure I wanted to, if you want to know the whole truth to that. But here we are, and some people are asking the question, maybe you're one of them, how could you possibly talk about having faith when faith didn't keep the storm away? Well, we want to talk about some of the dynamics of faith on this program, and one of them is to answer questions just like that. And one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is, well, what is really behind the whole business of storms and other natural disasters? Why do we even have them in the first place? I mean, if there's a good God and we can have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness, what in the world's going on with storms and all of the rest of the things that happen that we think a good God should keep from us? Well, I think that that's a fair question for people to ask. I do not mind the question. I think it's a reasonable question to ask because it does, in, in its essence, recognize that God is good. And that's important because God is good. The Bible tells us that. That's the revelation of God down through human history. And so if we start with the premise that God is good, then we necessarily bump up against some of these things. And how could a good God allow these things to happen? The trouble with that is I think it starts from a good understanding that God is good, but it assumes something that isn't true. And the assumption is that while God is good, then he should do only the good things that will help us in just the way we think they should help us. And we miss something very important in the, the whole process of that. So let's dial this back a little bit and answer this question before we get into some other things about faith that I think will also help us during times of challenge and stress and bewilderment and all the rest of that stuff. So let's start at the beginning. How could a good God allow things like a hurricane to happen? And people have answered that question in a lot of ways, and I don't pretend to be any better than the rest of them, but think about it this way. This helps me, and maybe it'll help you. We understand that God did create the heavens and the earth, and in the Garden of Eden, everything was provided exactly the way it was needed for Adam and Eve to thrive. They had food. They, they were plentifully taken care of. They didn't have to work for it. They could enjoy what God had created for them and fulfill God's expectations of them to populate the earth and to enjoy his presence and his his company forever. Well, we know what happened very quickly as the story unfolds in Genesis. 
Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of the forbidden fruit. And sure enough, what did they do? They ate of the forbidden fruit. You remember that story. It's not complicated. Almost everybody who's heard anything about the Bible and about God has heard this reference to forbidden fruit. Well, they ate the forbidden fruit. They committed what we call, because the Bible calls it, sin. And as a result of that, everything broke. And everything started to deteriorate and to break down. And as a result of that, they became responsible before God for that sin. And God had warned them there would be consequences to that. And they should be on their good behavior, shall we say. Well, they they didn't. They sinned. And the world began to break. Now, before we get too fixated, shall we say, on Adam and Eve, let's remind ourselves that the Bible also tells us, and when we're honest, we recognize that it's true, that we have all done things we shouldn't do. It's what the Bible calls sin. God says, don't do the things that I tell you not to do, because when you do them, it's bad for you. So people try to, this these days and, and all days, really, try to rationalize their way around. Well, God doesn't understand this, or we've learned that. Cut through all the baloney, and it comes down to something very simple. God tells us don't do certain things, and he tells us to do certain things, because avoiding certain things is good for us. Sin is bad for us, so don't do those things. And do the right things, because doing the right things that God tells us to do is good for us. So here's a good God who's warning us away from the bad things and urging us on to the good things. And here we are wondering why God doesn't keep all these terrible things from happening to us. And we forget that we sinned. And the results of sin has been a broken world and natural disasters are part of that. Really, the question we should be asking instead of, why doesn't God stop all these bad things from happening? The question we should be asking is, wow, isn't it amazing how many good things happen in spite of all the bad things that people have done? Isn't it amazing how God brings good to pass and reveals his goodness to us in the midst of all this nonsense that goes on around us? So, Every time you're tempted to ask the question, why do these bad things happen to good people? Stop and realize that even the best of us, and I don't claim to be the best of us, even the best of us have sinned before God, and we bear the consequences of that. And we live in a world that is broken because of that. And instead of wondering why God doesn't fix these things, we should be thankful that many good things happen. And in reality, God has fixed the brokenness. He's fixed the brokenness when he sent his son to take our place, to die, to pay the penalty for all of the sin, to begin to make the wrong things right so that one day they will be made right. Well, that's a little beginning here. We want to get into some some other things today. And yeah, I'll talk a little bit more about the hurricane and its effect on people and, and our community here. I don't want to turn this into hurricane news, but I have a feeling you'll be interested in that. And because it does help us have perspective that I believe helps us have a more mature understanding of what God is up to in our world and how we need to respond to that. And I think God can help us respond to that. And I think he 
he wants to help us do that. And I think if we're honest, we want his help because we want to respond better to those kinds of things. Well, in case you missed it and you're not familiar with our program, I am Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of a church in, in Cape Coral, Florida. We're in Lee County. We are right where the hurricane hit. We um, experienced the full fury of it. It was devastating to some of our communities, but we're getting back together. I pastor a real church. We are just like every other church that you probably know, made of real people. We have our ups and downs. We have our ins and outs. We make mistakes. We stretch each other. And most of all, we support each other through the difficult times and the losses that take place during these times. So we're no different, different than you are. We just happen to be here. And, um, you know, we didn't ask for all this, but God has brought it our way. And we are going to wrestle our way through it and trust him. There's no reason not to trust God. And there's plenty of reason to trust him. So we've been looking at faith in a little bit more specific ways over the last couple of weeks because we've been following this journey that Jesus is making on his way to Jerusalem and to the cross, to his death, burial, and resurrection. Sometimes this section of Luke that begins about chapter 9 is called the Jerusalem journey. But it's a travel dialogue, you might say, or uh, travel log a little bit because it's following Jesus as he makes his way toward Jerusalem and it tells the story of some things that happened along the way. And so we're looking at those incidents a little bit and and today we're in Luke chapter 17 and there's a rather short story really concisely told by Luke and I think that's a benefit because it really helps us focus on the key things. But there's a little story that Luke tells us about Jesus' encounter with 10 men who suffer from leprosy. And I just want to read that. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Maybe different than yours. I encourage you to find a Bible you will read. Find one you understand and read it. There are really many excellent translations. If you want to know a very readable one, look for the New Living Translation. No translation is perfect. I understand that. You understand that. But if you have trouble reading, look for the New Living Translation. You can check it out online. You don't have to make a big purchase on that. Or if you are brave, and, and I think it's really a very helpful English translation called The Message. Read that one. And that'll help you a lot because it, it's in very plain language, very down to earth. And it will help you understand the story of Jesus. So anyway, we're in Luke chapter 17. And we're going to pick it up with verse 11 from the Christian Standard Bible. While traveling to Jerusalem, he, and that's referring to Jesus, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he, again, it's Jesus, as he entered a village, 10 men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, again, at Jesus' feet, thanking him. And he, the man, was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Didn't they return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. 
Well, very interesting story that Jesus tells here, very helpful and very insightful on this concept of faith. Now, one of the things that I have been fascinated with for a number of years now, and I don't know that I'm particularly expert at it, but I've been trying to take these abstract concepts like faith, like grace, and make them more understandable because they were not quite the mystery in Jesus' day and to his hearers that we have come to understand them to be. They're, they're much more understandable to, to regular everyday people, it seems to me, when you read the pages of the New Testament than they sometimes are to us. And it's not that we're so bad about understanding it, it's just that we get caught up sometimes in trying to think these things through and understand them thoroughly that we miss some of the concrete nature of them. And one of the things that I appreciate is that when the Bible helps us be very concrete, helps us get our arms around these things. You see, something like faith is not something you can take a picture of. But, but at the same time, Jesus said, what did he say? Your faith has saved you. So something was observable here. And so we need to think about this in terms of what's going on so that we can grasp in our own understanding of what is happening in this story and what that means to us, what lesson it has for us, because I think it's hugely important. And uh, yes, I, I remember this story. I learned a lot of Bible stories as a kid. I'll be forever grateful for my church in Milford, Ohio. Many years ago, the people there that taught the Bible stories, one lady in particular, Clara Goodman, she's with the Lord and been with him for a while now, but she taught us Bible stories and I learned things probably in spite of myself. I don't think I was a model kid all the time, but I did learn a lot from her in spite of the fact that I thought I was too grown up for some of the things and all the stuff kids go through. So if you work with kids and you have kids like that, teach them the Bible stories. If you don't know what else to do, teach them the Bible stories. I learned more about the Bible stories from those people in that church and particularly from Clara Goodman than I have learned any other single place. That's the church I largely grew up in. And I think that if you're working in a church and if you're teaching kids, you need to hear some of that sometimes because it was, it was huge in my life. I can't say enough about that. Those people will never know unless I get a chance to tell them someday in heaven how important that was for me. But anyway, I remember this story and whoever told it at the time, and uh, pardon me, I don't remember who told it. I just remember hearing the story. And, and the story was interesting, and I enjoyed that. But I remember the emphasis of the story that day and the lesson they were teaching us as children was we need to be grateful. We need to give thanks. And they pointed out that only one of the 10 men that Jesus healed actually returned to give thanks. And, of course, Jesus pointed that out, so it is an important understanding from the story. And that's what they told us, be thankful. Learn to be thankful. Well, an important lesson and one we need to continue to remind ourselves about. But that's not what struck me this time as I looked at that story. There's something a little bit deeper going on, seems to me, much more helpful to us. And, and I found myself thinking, why have I never got this before? Well, it's because of two things. One, I guess I'm in the slow group. Uh, and maybe it's because we just haven't talked about these kind of things in concrete terms enough. And maybe I was exposed to it, but didn't hear it. And now's when I need Jesus to help me understand that. Now's when I need the Holy Spirit to point me in the right direction. And so instead of wondering what's wrong with me, and, and there's plenty wrong with me, don't get me, don't get me started on that. 
But maybe some of us, instead of wondering what's wrong with us, why we haven't seen things before, maybe we ought to just recognize that, that God in his kindness, he brings things to us when we need them most. And so I'm grateful that, that he's helped me understand these things. So anyway, back to the story. The story is a great story. Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, somewhere in the area between Samaria and Galilee, and he's entering a village. Well, that wouldn't be too unusual. They would pass through villages from time to time. He's on his journey to Jerusalem, and the location, the geography, may very well account for the fact that the group of men who needed healing were both Jewish and Samaritan, because the text indicates in a, in a kind of roundabout way that there was a mixed group because Jesus makes a point of identifying the Samaritan with the assumption that the others were Israelites, people that he would have expected to recognize him and to give thanks, but they didn't. So they come to this village and outside the village, these men see Jesus coming. And so they call out to him in a loud voice, Master, have mercy on us. Well, they called out in a loud voice because in those days when you had this disease that most of our English translations call leprosy, they were required to keep themselves separate from other people. It was a very contagious disease and there was no cure. When you got leprosy, it was a death sentence. And so they had to keep their distance from people and probably they didn't want to give someone else that disease because if you had it, you knew how horrible it was. So they kept their distance from Jesus. They called out, they raised their voices and addressed him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Well, here they are, desperately ill, addressing Jesus as Master. Now, that's very interesting because this word that's translated here and other places as master is only used six times in the New Testament. And all of the times that that's, this particular word is used, it's used for Jesus. And all of those six times where this word that we understand as master is used, all six of those uses are in the Gospel of Luke. And all of the other five occur before this incident. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the other five incidents where master is used when a person or a group of people is addressing Jesus, it's used by either the group of Jesus' disciples or by one of the disciples to Jesus. And now here are these men who are not part of the inner group, but they recognize in Jesus something that elicits from them the identification of Jesus as master. Here are men who are, have this dreaded disease that we describe as leprosy, addressing Jesus as master and recognizing something about Jesus that can help them. And they cry out, and in, in some English translations, prob probably not all, though I didn't check all of them, and certainly in this one it says, have mercy on us. Now, when I read that, have mercy on us, First thing that got my attention was here are these people with leprosy, desperately ill, and they're asking for mercy, not healing. Well, a little bit further investigation, which helped satisfy my mind, I discovered that this idea of have mercy was also the equivalent of a request for healing because the mercy would have been to heal them so that they could be restored to their lives, to their families, and not be continually cut off from other people. 
So these lepers kept their distance from Jesus because they were segregated from other people. They were required to, to keep their distance. They addressed him as master, recognizing his authority. And they humbly asked, in traditional language, language of the day, very common language, they asked for Jesus to have mercy on them. And Jesus responds very quickly. We don't get any more information other than, than that quickly. He responds to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now that seems like an, another kind of unusual thing to say. Well, it really wasn't in the context. It was Jesus showing respect for and expecting them to show respect for the law of Moses because Moses had spelled out in the law, you can read it in the Old Testament, how they were supposed to handle skin diseases because some of them were very contagious and fatal. And so they had to protect themselves from this disease. And so the scriptures outline how to do that. And it assigns to the priests the role of identifying the dangerous skin diseases that required someone to leave his family or her family and to separate themselves from people because they were so so ill and so contagious. And it was the priest's responsibility and it gave them symptoms to look for, a lot of details, you can look that up. And the priests, because it was their assignment to see that, were then the people who were authorized to pronounce people either clean or unclean. And they were considered unclean when they had this disease. And so it would be, we might more commonly think of that as healed or not healed. The, the clean and unclean had very vivid resonance with those people because that was the way they understand many of their relationships with God, that they, that they were either unclean and allowed to participate in the, in the tabernacle and temple worship, or they were unclean and they were cut, cut off from that. So clean and unclean is what was going on. And there were a number of diseases that, that we refer to as leprosy. And we don't know exactly what disease these men had because the ancient language uses one word for a range of these skin diseases. And, and yet we do know, even if it wasn't what we call leprosy today, it was a very serious illness that separated them from people and they had to respect it and they had to have healing from someplace because it was beyond their ability to manage. It's also interesting that Jesus said, go to the priests. We wouldn't say, go see the pastor and check on your skin disease and, and please don't ever come to me for sure. We would say to people, go to the doctor, go see a dermatologist, something like that. But in this day, that was very much what was expected and what they were supposed to do. The priests were the ones who were equipped and authorized to make those decisions. And so Jesus, out of respect for that, sent them to the priest. It's also very interesting that, that his first word here is, and it's, I, I realize it's an English translation, but in many English translations, the first word is go. See, Jesus didn't just tell them, well, here's a suggestion. Here's what you ought to do. This is an imperative. It's the language you use. Go, do this without hesitation. Go. It's an imperative. And of course, they went. They went. And there's no indication in the text that they hesitated. They didn't ask a question. They didn't say, but Jesus, I thought you were going to heal us. Why do you send us to the priest? They didn't raise any of those kind of things. We're pretty good at that, some of us. When Jesus tells us something, we're pretty good at saying, can I do something different? And I, no, Jesus says, do what I tell you. And here is go. And to their credit, they didn't say anything. They just simply turned 
and started on their way to see the priest. And it says in the text, most fascinating thing, they turned to go and it says, are you ready for this? And while they were going, they were cleansed or healed while they were going. When they did what Jesus said on the way to see the priest, suddenly they look at themselves and they realize they've been healed. And that realization is what prompted this man, the Samaritan man, to turn around and go back to Jesus. It says in verse 15, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. So he recognizes this has happened. He turns around and with a loud voice gives glory to God. Isn't that remarkable? Now we read the New Testament and we know the story of Jesus and we know he was the son of God sent to deliver the world. But here this guy, there's no indication that he knew that. They did call him master. That's partial indication, I guess. But without hesitation, he turns around and goes back to Jesus, giving glory to God. I want to reinforce that Jesus is God. Here it is. This man recognized that. He went back and gave glory to God. It says he fell face down, face down at his feet, at Jesus' feet. Now, a couple of interesting things about that. Notice he no longer kept his distance from Jesus. Why? He was healed. He recognized that, and he didn't have to keep his distance. That was not required. So he goes to Jesus, and he falls face down. Now, other English translations say he prostrated himself in front of Jesus. What that means is, in that day, the custom of the day was when you were in the presence of greatness, certainly being in the presence of God would qualify, but sometimes before kings and other high officials, if people met them, they would fall face down and stretch themselves completely out before those people. It was a sign of honor and of subjection to them. It was customary. It's not what we do, but it's what they did. And here he is, a Samaritan, acknowledging Jesus. Jesus says, well, weren't 10 people healed? Well, Jesus knew they'd been healed. And uh, as though what happened to them and yeah, 10 were healed, but Jesus points out, uh, did only this foreigner give God glory? Well, there's a little more going on here than, than maybe we quickly recognize. Yes, he gave God glory, and that we must not miss. Yes, he was grateful, and he returned to express that gratitude to Jesus. Now, maybe the other guys were planning to, but they never caught up with Jesus. Maybe we just don't have that part of the story. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus is helping us understand that here's a man who gave God glory, and this man was a foreigner. Now, what does that mean? Jesus used that specific word here. He made the point of using that word to point out to the people who were listening that this man was what they would have considered a despised man. They would have considered a Samaritan a half-breed and a heretic. They did not have a good view of Samaritans at all. And yet Jesus makes a point of saying, I healed the Samaritan and look at what he did. He came back to say thank you. Isn't that remarkable? Well, it is remarkable. And one of the things we should notice about that is that while he wasn't part of the inner group, he was still part of the group of people that Jesus came to touch. 
Jesus didn't come to restrict his ministry or his message or his offer of salvation to a certain group of people. He came for the whole world. And pointing out the Samaritan would have reinforced that to people. So outsiders have access to Jesus and outsiders have access to the gospel. It's not an insider's club. It's for whosoever will may come. And we need to remember that. And maybe you need to remember that. You maybe think of yourself as an outsider. Maybe you think of yourself as someone who has positioned themselves in life to be against the gospel or uh, don't have time for church or no interest in church or how can I bother with all that kind of stuff? I've got other things, supposedly more important things to do. Well, maybe you've made yourself an outsider, but Jesus doesn't see you as an outsider. He invites you to come and he invites you into his circle and he invites you to be part of his kingdom that is coming and that he's pointing out in the pages of this. So the fact that this man was a Samaritan really reinforces that idea, really reinforces that idea that that anybody can come to Jesus. And so I want us to make sure that we don't miss that reality. Anybody who hears the voice of God, and if you're hearing that now, in, in some way that God is speaking to you, anybody that hears God reaching out to them can turn to God. And yet far too often people want to say, well, I've lived this long this way, I guess I can't turn around now. But it doesn't matter who you are, or what you've done, or what other people think you've done. And isn't that sometimes what gets us, what other people think we've done? None of that matters. What matters is if you hear the voice of God, This story reminds all of us that God speaks to each and every person and invites us into the gospel to benefit from what he came to provide, to follow him, to give thanks. Well, there's a little bit more about this faith idea we're going to get into in just a minute. We're going to take a break and then we'll get back to that. And yes, I'll talk a little bit more about the hurricane, probably Uh, probably just enough to help us have an idea, but I think we learned some lessons from it. So you stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. 
Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we stretch each other in God's direction, and we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm so glad you've joined us, and I'm so glad you're exploring this idea of faith because so many people get mixed up about things, and we're trying to make it concrete and understandable here, and we're looking at the story of the Good Samaritan, or not, sorry, not the Good Samaritan, the thankful Samaritan leper that was healed. We get so caught up in the Good Samaritan, that's a familiar story. But here's another Samaritan. This, this man was a leper, and he was actually healed by Jesus. And we've been reminding ourselves that the gospel is available to people that, that hear from God and, and want to turn to him. God is not a respecter of people and leaves some people out and some people in. He wants everybody to come to know him. And if you hear his voice speaking to you, respond to that. Don't assume it's not for you. Assume that even by listening to this program and by demonstrating interest that God is talking to you and that he wants you to turn in his direction, to repent, to come to Jesus for cleansing, for healing, to have your life made new. So here we are exploring this idea of faith with this Samaritan man who had leprosy, who no longer has leprosy. He returned to Jesus. He fell face down, prostrated himself before Jesus, gave thanks and glory to God. And Jesus says to him something very interesting, very little dialogue given to us. You have to wonder if there wasn't more conversation that went on. But, but Jesus rhetorically asked the question, where are the others that were healed? But then he says to this man, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Well, that's a riveting statement by Jesus after that, particularly this idea about your faith has saved you. But let's, let's start at the beginning here. This idea that Jesus says, get up and go on your way, this is fascinating because the ancient language, the word that we are translating get up, in the ancient language, that's the word that's used for resurrection. Now think about that. Here's a man whose life was over because leprosy was a fatal disease. He was cut off from his family, from his people, from worshiping God in the temple, from every thing he had ever known. And now he was forced to live outside of the city and fend for himself as best he could with the, only the company 
of the other people who suffered from the same disease. And now he's healed, and Jesus says, get up and, and go. It's, it's a resurrection for sure, because he had, in all, in all senses of the word, been given his life back. But then Jesus says something very interesting. Your faith has saved you, or most English translations say your faith has healed you. I'm only pointing out that the Christian Standard Bible says save so that nobody gets confused. No matter the word that's used here, the clear sense is that this man had been restored. His life had been saved. He had been healed. So if you prefer to use the word healed, that's entirely appropriate here. I'm not sure why these translators chose the word saved. It's not about one word over another in this particular instance. It's about the fact that this man's life had been saved because he was healed. He had had a resurrection because he had been healed. But then we think about this thing that Jesus says, your faith has healed you, your faith. Now I've heard lots of people talk about this idea that, well, brother, if you just have enough faith, or, you know, your loved one wasn't healed because you didn't have enough faith. Now, I want to respect people who disagree with me on these things. I do not want to be that person who is disrespectful and mean-spirited. But I want to tell you as kindly but as bluntly as I can that that's a bunch of nonsense. It's not about that at all. It's clear from this story that it's not about did you have enough faith. There's other things going on here, so let's not get tangled up in that knot, okay? And if you have been tangled up in that knot, would you knock it off? You can go back and read, and we talked about this earlier, that, that Jesus talked about the faith the size of a mustard seed was amazingly powerful and could do great things. It's not about quantity of faith. It's about something else. And it's really fascinating here. Why did Jesus make this statement, your faith has healed you? What about the man exhibited something that Jesus recognized as faith. And, and, and is Jesus really saying that something about faith is visible? Did the man benefit in a way different than the others? Well, we don't think that. It doesn't say that, that the others weren't healed. But clearly Jesus saw something in this man and the, one of the somethings for sure was that it was common to the other nine as well. But I want us to think about this and answer this question. What is it that the man did that Jesus recognized as faith? And why do we have so much trouble recognizing this? Why do we make faith so abstract and difficult? Well, let's think about what did the man do? And part of what he did was what all of them did. So you go back to the beginning and what did the the men do, including this man, they cried out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they clearly turned to Jesus for help because they knew their, their situation was desperate. They cried out to Jesus for help. And Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest. Now, Jesus didn't say to them, you're healed. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say do anything other than go show yourself to the priest, which would have been the next step that they would have taken after healing because the priest is the only one that could pronounce them suitable to return to their families and their homes. So they went. And it says in the story, and we talked about this, that as they were going, they were healed. And the Samaritan man in particular has pointed out, he recognizes as they were going to see the priest, in response to Jesus, he recognized that he was 
healed, and he returns to Jesus and gives glory to God out of gratitude to Jesus. So let's think about what is it that we see this man doing that Jesus saw that made Jesus say, your faith has healed you. Because we don't tend to think in terms of concrete behaviors being indicators of faith. So a couple things the guy did right was he recognized Jesus was the source of his help. He did what Jesus said, and he returned to give gratitude to God. Well, it's not too much of a thing to think that people might turn to Jesus. People do all the time. But here is the deciding difference that we must not miss if we're going to identify faith as Jesus does in this story. Yes, many people will say, yeah, I believe Jesus is a great guy. They'll even believe he's God. But how many people, how many people, when Jesus then tells them, I want you to do this, respond in instant obedience and demonstrate their confidence in him by putting that confidence into action. And we talk about faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And if we have that kind of confidence in God's trustworthiness, then it leads to doing something about that. Because we don't have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God if we don't do what God says to do or what Jesus tells us to do. And this man absolutely did what Jesus said to do. That's the key to understanding what Jesus meant when he said, your faith has healed you. That's the key. He recognized that he had to do something in response to Jesus' statement. And he did it. So the real takeaway from this is obedience, but there's a couple others that we should make sure we don't miss. First of all, when you need help, turn to Jesus. He's the source of your help. And that's what these people did. They understood life is put back together the right way when we put Jesus first and recognize he is the source of our help. If you've been looking for help in all kinds of other places, just stop and turn to him. Second thing the man did absolutely right was the next thing that we will be faced with when we turn to Jesus, we need to respond in obedience. If we're going to follow Jesus and recognize he is the source of our help, then our expectation is that we will do what he says. And Jesus' expectation is that we will do what he says, because that's how we demonstrate that we really do believe in him. How many people have you heard and I've heard, and it's heartbreaking. People say, well, I believe in God, but there's no evidence in their life that they put God first. None. They don't attend church. They just say words about things at, at all kinds of interesting times. Now, I don't know, and I'm, it's not my point to judge the people that do that. That's not what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is that if you want to follow Jesus and demonstrate the faith that Jesus expects, you and I need to do what God calls us to do. And then the third thing, of course, is to give gratitude to God for all that he's done for us. And that's the idea of reciprocity in ancient times. That was not unusual. It's a little unusual to us. We think that, well, God's going to give us this, and then we can go do whatever we want to. Now, that's not the point at all. It's absolutely critical that we recognize that, that when we do what Jesus says, we continually come back and we give thanks for what he's doing in our lives. The other good news is this. If you are doing 
what Jesus expects you to do, and you have that kind of confidence that you are in the will of God, that you are doing what he wants you to do, then that's a great hope. That's a great security because you don't have to wonder, am I okay with Jesus? If you are doing what he's asked you to do, then that's a great confidence builder toward this idea of absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, on the other hand, if if he's telling you you need to straighten up in one area or another, and he will if you need to, then you need to hear what he says and do it. Now, you might think it's going to be hard to do what he says because maybe you already know what it is and you've been resisting that. Well, I'm not promising that everything he asks you to do is easy. I'm just saying that Jesus, when he asks, has a reason for it, and it's for our good. And you don't really demonstrate that you believe that until you do it. So don't tell me that you believe that we should not steal if you continually steal. And that's kind of a trite example, but I think it's something we just need to to use sometimes. I could pick on some harder ones, but I don't want to pick on one that you might be dealing with or that might let you off the hook. I just want to choose one that's obvious. You know, when he says don't steal, he means don't steal. So don't steal. Okay, I believe that, so I don't steal. I hope that's how you respond too. But, you know, he might be calling you to do something else. And it might not be to stop something, although it might be. He might be saying stop this. It might be that he's talking to you about starting something. And maybe he's been wanting you to give your life to something that you've been fighting and you've been reluctant to do. And so today, we can demonstrate our faith by saying to him, okay, I'll give my life to this. It means I have to change my attitude, my mindset. It means I need to change my behaviors. It means other people are going to look at me funny because all this time I've been acting one way and now I'm making a U-turn in life and going a different way. Yeah, it may mean all of that. But if you keep going the wrong way, it's the path of destruction. And if these men who had leprosy had not gone Jesus' way, they would have gone from Jesus' presence and continued to be sick and to suffer. And isn't it time for us to stop being people who suffer because we disobey Jesus and start being the kind of people who respond with gratitude and trust him enough to actually do what he says? Well, let's think about some other things that we think about faith here before we get away from all of this. And and I do want to talk a little bit about the hurricane stuff and, and some things that I'm learning through all of this. And I don't, I don't know whether you will learn all of these lessons, but it really helps me because I remind myself about faith. And, and so I started this list, this what I've sometimes called 10 things I think, and that's not original with me. Other people have done this. But I started this list before the hurricane, but then when the hurricane came, I started thinking through some things and adding some things. And interestingly enough, at the top of the list, the 10 things I think was this one. Before the hurricane, I said... I think it's important for us to do hard things. A lot of times people want to do easy things. Now, sometimes you can think about a hard thing and say, well, what, a, what would make this easy? And that's okay. Do that. But don't shrink from hard things. Enduring the stormy hours of a hurricane is not easy. It wears on you. Recovering from a hurricane is not easy. It wears on people. It wears on me. Going 10 days without electricity and water is not easy. It's a hard thing. But when we do hard things, we discover our own resilience. And then we begin to realize if we can do this, then, well, imagine what else we could do. And so it teaches us not to shrink from hard things, 
but to embrace the things that God calls us to do and go ahead and do them. Now, the little other insight into this storm, yes, we had our electricity back and consequently water because we use electricity to pump water out of a well 10 days after the storm. So for the weekend, we had no problems. Saturday and Sunday, it was great until late Sunday night when the electricity went out again and it was out until late Monday night. Now that was not easy. And I was tired of dealing with it, but sometimes we just have to press through. So do hard things. Another thing that I've heard and that I think is that people just latch on to nonsense in difficult times in a way they shouldn't. I heard some press reports and I didn't follow them closely. So if you've heard different than what I'm describing, that's fine. But I heard some press reports that were claiming that the authorities in Lee County and, and in other parts of Florida did not give orders to evacuate early enough. In other words, they botched the warnings and, and they didn't tell people what they needed to know in time. Well, having lived here, having gone through this process, and this isn't my first storm, I can tell you without a doubt that warnings were issued in plenty of time. People had the opportunity to leave. They could get away from the coastal areas and from the areas that flooded, but many people chose to stay there. And when the media comes along and sees those decisions and then says that the authorities made a mistake and didn't do what they should have done, that's just baloney. And we should not believe that. There was plenty of warning. I've talked to people around here. We all heard plenty of warning. And we all know that some people always stay. That's their decision. We respect that. Whether it's the right decision or not is a whole different conversation. But they were warned. The other thing that... that also points out some of the good things that have been happening is that Pine Island, one of our barrier islands, was completely cut off by the storm, washed away the access to the island. But three days after the storm, access to the island had been restored. That's just nothing short of amazing. Sanibel Island, you may have heard about that. The causeway and the roads to Sanibel Island were badly destroyed. First reports were that they wouldn't be able to restore that access to the island for a year. Well, a couple of days ago, access to the island was restored and utility and other crews have been on the island working to clean up and put things back together. And on October 21st, just a few days from now, it'll be open for civilian traffic to the island. I don't think they're going to be ready for tourists, but the people that live there and work there will be able to get back to the island on October 21st. That is remarkable. That is remarkable. So don't believe all this nonsense. Well, when we find out the mistakes were made, probably everybody's human. Probably there were mistakes made, but don't believe this hurricane evacuation being botched nonsense. That's just crazy. Number three of the 10 things I think is that hurricane recovery is enormously wearing. And we're all learning that lesson again. I think we all knew that it physically, emotionally, in every way, it wears people down. It's exhausting. So if you know people in this area and you've been talking to them, be gentle with them as they try to recover because they are worn down in ways that you and I wouldn't know except if we've been here. Number four, 10 things I think. It is astounding the volume of re relief supplies pouring into our area. There are so many people trying to help and we are grateful for everyone. There's so many kind-hearted people, so many organizations sending water and tarps and food and all kinds of things. It is simply amazing. 
There is so much help coming in that certain types, types of help is just too much. And certain organizations have had to say, just wait, we can't handle the volume of your kindness anymore. And we in Southwest Florida are grateful. If you've been part of helping, we are grateful. It is simply a huge blessing to see all of that. Number six, or number five, I guess, of the 10 things I think is, it was remarkable. I can't get over how blessed we were with pleasant weather after the storm. The temperature was much cooler than normal. And when you don't have air conditioning and hot, humid Southwest Florida, that is a real blessing. And, and we need to give God credit for that and give thanks for that because in the midst of all these things, there are some good things that have happened. Number six, 10 things I think is that God will provide for our needs here. I mean, there are multiplied millions of dollars of damage. Uh, I've had some damage to my house. We had significant damage to the church. I think I mentioned last time it's going to be probably more than $35,000 to repair it. Other churches face similar challenges. I talked to another pastor that in an inland church that has serious difficulties. But I am simply reminding myself and reminding our, us, we as a church are reminding each other that God will provide. Now, I, I don't say that because I'm trying to make my problem your problem. I say that because I believe that God will provide. I, I have no doubt about that. I, and I don't like it when one group or one person makes their problem my problem. I tried to order something, and I did order it yesterday, that we need. That won't be available for six months. That's fine. That's not a hardship. Six months is fine. But they wanted me to pay for it right now and to wait six months for the product. Well, they explained why, but really the why was they were making their problem my problem. So I'm not trying to tell you about our problems to, to make them your problems. I do want to give thanks for, for your prayers and for your kindness to us. And I want to give thanks to Cindy from Illinois. She sent a real nice check to help our church. I didn't mention this to get you all to do that, but I do want to give, be grateful and, and uh, to recognize Cindy's kindness and to help you understand God will provide and he'll provide for you if you need something to. We just need to trust him. Number seven, 10 things I think. Amid all this devastation and loss, we need to be alert. And I'm reminding myself and our church, we need to be alert for the ways that God will redeem this disaster. I know that sounds really crazy. People say, well, what do you mean? A disaster is a disaster. Yes, it is. You and I have suffered other kinds of losses in our lives. But it's simply remarkable to me how in the midst of these losses that we suffer, how God is able to turn horrible things around and make something useful out of it. How he's able to redeem the hard places of life. And I think he's going to do that more and more as we watch for it. And I'm kind of, you know, it's kind of weird to say this, okay? You'll, you'll understand, I hope. But I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how God is going to redeem this thing. Because I have every confidence that he will. Uh, number eight of the 10 things I think is our church and, and I am still amazed and so very appreciative for the group of men that came down from North Carolina, Energized Ministry, how they put the tarp on our church roof and cleared the brush and helped us enormously. It was a huge load lifted from us and I want to thank Energized Ministry again. They were, they were just beyond terrific, beyond terrific. Number nine, 10 things that I think there are so many good-hearted people in the world. When you go through something like this, you find out about all the good-hearted people. Now, there are some black-hearted people. We've had some looting reports and some other things. I get that. But really, 
really the overwhelming impression that I've had is the, the kindness of people to each other and the good hearts that people are demonstrating. And I hope that God will fan fan those good-hearted people into flame and that they will turn to him with faithfulness and trust And we move through this period and things get better. And then finally, 10 things I think, number 10. The goodness of God is not measured by his response to my requests or even my demands. Yeah, sometimes we all fall into the trap of demanding from God. But the goodness of God is not measured by whether he gives me what I think is good for me. Maybe what I think is good for me really isn't. I, I Like you, I always think it is, but maybe it's not. But God's goodness isn't measured by that. God's goodness is measured by the gift that God gave to the whole world when he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins, to be buried, to be resurrected, to put all of the wrongs right in our lives. And one day, one day, all of this stuff will be fixed. All of the wrongs will be made right. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will not be disasters to be concerned about. All of that stuff will be made right, and we will live with the one who is the light of the world forever. And it's that recognition, it's that knowledge, it's that confidence that helps me have faith. See, faith is never going to be measured by whether God does what I ask him to do. I'm delighted when he does, and occasionally that's happened. But I'm not the measure of that. God is the measure. And he demonstrated once and for all, for all the world to see, that he is faithful and he is good because he did for us what we could never do for ourselves in the giving of his son, Jesus. And it all starts there. So recognize him as God. Do what he tells you to do, and then give thanks for him and his great gift to all of us. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I hope our time together helps you develop that faith and to put aside some screwy ideas about faith that sometimes people advance because faith really is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And by the grace God gives us, we will have confidence in him. Let's talk again next week.